Here on the Songwriter Theory Podcast, we spend most of our time talking about specifically the songwriting side of things. We talk about lyric writing. We talk about the music theory you need to know as a songwriter, or at least would be certainly very helpful. We talk about, of course, the musical element of songwriting. But something that maybe we don't talk about a ton is all the other hats we have to wear as modern songwriters. If we simply just sit at home and write songs, no one else will ever hear our songs in any way, shape, or form, unless, of course, it's like our spouse upstairs that hears us (laughs) writing them or whatever. But there are a ton of hats that, as modern songwriters, we often have to wear. So in this episode, we're going to touch on each of them. Hello, friend. Welcome to another episode of the Songwriter Theory Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Joseph Adala. Honored that you would take some time to spend time with me listening to this podcast, talking with me about songwriting, and in this case, the many hats that songwriters have these days. It is not something that I take for granted that you take some time to listen to this podcast. I know that I only have a certain amount of time per week and I have to be choosy about what podcasts I listen to, so I'm honored that I made the cut this week. So let's dive right in. The many hats of the modern songwriter. Let's cover the first obvious one first. Songwriting, right? As a songwriter, that is the main thing that we're doing. It might not even be the thing we spend the most time on, but as a songwriter, it it must be true that we are writing songs. So what does that mean, really? A songwriter is somebody overall that writes a song, which is really just the copyrighted or the copyrightable combination of melody, harmony, which a lot of times we see as chord progression. There's more to harmony and instrumentation uh, than just chord progression. But often as songwriters, I think we tend to see things as just chord progressions, but really it's total harmony. And then you could go one step further and say the total instrumentation, right? Because drums aren't harmonic. Uh, There's no pitch really in drums, Uh, but it's still a part of the important instrumentation of a song. But anyway, so melody, harmony, chord progression. Uh, Again, harmony, chord progression being basically the same thing in this context. And lyrics, right? That's what you copyright when you copyright a song. Now, depending on how you do the copywriting, Uh, If you actually make a recording of the song, you can copyright both the specific recording of the song and the song itself at the same time. But generally, when we're talking about, you know, if I write a song and I'm the copyright legal owner of that song, I legally own the combination of the melody, the harmony, aka chord progression in this instance, and lyrics, right? Which is why it is that, you know, somebody can cover somebody else's song. Um, And that's that even though they rearrange the song, it's still a cover of someone else's song, right? They can change the key. They can even reharmonize the song, right? Change the chord progression underneath. But that melody and the lyrics are still something from another song. Therefore, it is overall the same song, just a different arrangement of that song, which we'll touch on arranging later. But when you copyright a song, you're basically copywriting the combination of melody, chord progression, and lyrics, So we could even break down songwriter further. And I think it's actually helpful to, because I think the tendency is a a songwriter is sort of in the Venn diagram of a music composer and a poet, 
they're in the cross section. They're they're, they're in the the middle of those, right? Because as a songwriter, you somewhat need to be a music composer and you somewhat need to be a poet. Now, I think where we get in trouble is I think sometimes we use that as an excuse to be an okay poet and an okay composer. And if we're both an okay composer and an okay poet, that can come together and make a pretty decent songwriter. And I do think that's true to an extent. Certainly a music composer overall tends to dive deeper into harmonic, especially advanced harmonic concepts compared to a lot of times what songs do. A lot of times songs are uh, harmonically simplistic, right? If you, if you take, you know, a really advanced Bach piece or something and then you compare that to the latest Goo Goo Dolls song or something, the, the, the harmony is significantly simpler usually on the, you know, Goo Goo Dolls in that example than it would be in a Bach piece, right? You, even if you're not a very good guitarist, could probably learn to play the uh, new Goo Goo Dolls song but you probably couldn't just play Bach would be a simple way of looking at it. And that's okay, right? For the most part, uh, songs need to be somewhat simpler musically than, than what a lot of true music compositions, especially uh, classical ones, would be. And then same, sort of the same idea with poetry, right? Uh, a, a good poem needs to be able to stand on its own. Right? A great poem is good just by reading the words. There is nothing else to help it. So yes, it is true that if we have great melody and great music, um, f- for some people, we can have garbage lyrics and they won't even notice. Um, and, and just in, in general, I think the standard of how good lyrics need to be from a songwriter is not the same as what you would expect from a poet. So I think that both of those things sort of combine into sometimes as songwriters, people will even bristle at the idea of being called a music composer because it, it feels like it puts extra pressure on how well composed their music is. And a lot of times they don't necessarily think to themselves as poets, right? That's why we call ourselves lyricists most of the time. And even that, I know a lot of songwriters that are like, yeah, I write lyrics, but I'm not a lyricist, <laughs> right? And that's to me, it's like lyricist implies a higher level of lyrical writing, and then poet is like that last level, which that's arguable, right? Maybe when they say they're not really a lyricist, really what they mean is they're not really much of a poet. But here's my challenge to you. Fancy yourself both a composer and a poet. Raise the standard, right? Uh, the amount of music theory you need to know to be a true composer versus simply a songwriter is, yes, there, there is a gap there. Uh, to be a songwriter, really, all you really need to know is keys. And, you know, e- even that, you could probably stay there. Chord progressions would be helpful. Um, and you're almost good. There's really very little music theory you need. If you go further into music composition and learn things like modes and really get into specific intervals, and then learn more advanced harmonic structures, you know, more advanced chords, if you will. All of that is incredibly helpful. And I think every songwriter should do it. Same with lyrics. Yes, we can stay super low level, but I would encourage you not to. because Especially because I think the average songwriter is a terrible lyricist. Or maybe that's too far. A not, not a good lyricist. If you look at uh, your quote-unquote average song, Probably music like the melody is really good. 
Uh, probably the music is pretty catchy, right? So the harmony is pretty good. But the lyrics oftentimes will be pretty underwhelming uh, to the point that it's notable when you come across a songwriter that's actually a good lyricist. I would argue it's quite rare, actually. So the best way to separate yourself as a songwriter is to actually take lyrics seriously. Fancy yourself a poet, learn to do uh, lyric writing. Which I guess, by the way, since I touched on music theory there, uh, for more the composer side and lyric writing for the poet side, I do have two free guides. Feel free to check out. I'll put a link in the description, as always. But I have a six-step lyric writing checklist to help you with the lyrical side. I think it's easier if you break it down to steps. And then also uh, four pillars of music theory that I think every songwriter needs to know. Uh, so even if you aren't with me and wanting to really start to consider yourself a real music composer, not just somebody who like can write enough music to get by as a songwriter. Even if not, if you're not with me on that, these four pillars will absolutely help you a ton with your day-to-day songwriting. So highly recommend you check that out. That's at songwritertheory.com slash music theory guide. Again, the links will be in the description. All right. So that's songwriter. That's the first thing. Second thing, performer. And regardless of whether you're performing songs live or not, uh, probably the main performer of your songs is going to be you. Most of us are our own artists, if we want to call it that. Now, I don't particularly agree with the use of the term artist in the way that it's used in our world. Like, for example, let's take Ariana Grande or something. Uh, I'm pretty sure most of her songs she doesn't write at all. And if she does, it's like she gets songwriter credit as one of the 12 songwriters because she decided to change one word because she didn't like the way it sounded or she just wanted a different word, right? She's not really a songwriter. And that's true of most most pop acts. Uh, and you'll notice I just said pop acts. <laughs> that's because I don't think they should be called artists. Um, to me, artist is somebody who creates art and I would agree that, say, somebody like Celine Dion or Ariana Grande is a performance artist in, in the sense that they perform. But is that really an artist? You're, you're, you're essentially covering other people's songs. You're just covering songs of people who nobody's ever heard of, and you're the only one to cover them. So they really are – whatever. That's that's a, a rant for another day about that I feel like the word artist is, is, is too vague and not very useful a term. Uh, but anyway, usually if you, you know, go into a record store, if you would ever do that, or or if you're like looking on Spotify, right, let's keep it modern here, Joseph, then, you know, you search by artist, right? So you see that the Goo Goo Dolls did this song, and maybe they covered this song that, that Joe Schmo, some other guy, wrote way back in the day. I can't remember. I know they did actually do one cover. I don't remember who. I also don't know why Goo Goo Dolls keeps coming up, but here we go. Oh, I think because they just came out with a song, and... Per usual with the Goo Dolls, I'm sorely disappointed. Anyway, um, but for the most part, we are our own artists, right? If you write a song, you are also the performer of that song. Very rarely are you probably writing a song and then you're handing it to your friend who maybe actually does shows or does recording or whatever, and you say, hey, can you, can you make this song your own now? But I, I'm the songwriter, right? So usually we're more singer-songwriters. We have our own songs. We perform our own songs. If we plan to make a video, whether that's just us in our basement strumming a guitar and singing in, in, in a terrible quality camera with no mic or a demo tape 
or or go all out and do a full recording of our song, we actually have to perform it ourselves. All right, so we're a performer. And yes, even if you're recording at home, you know, in a quote-unquote studio setup, you you know, your $300 home studio setup or whatever it might be, yes, that that still counts as a performance, right? You were performing the song. That's just a a permanent performance. I don't know why I keep tripping on words today. What's going on? Um, Because it's going to be recorded forever. No pressure. Um, Which brings us to the third thing. The third hat that we usually have to wear as the modern songwriter, which is a recording engineer. Right? We're setting up the mics. We're plugging in the bass guitar. We're hitting that record button. And... Honestly, if you haven't gotten into recording, you really should. Especially if you're not out there doing open mics or you're not interested in that sort of thing or you live in an area where that's kind of difficult. Um, look, I get it. I also, like, I, I I truly love performing, but that's a thing that, like, I, I just haven't felt like I could justify the time in a while. Um, well, f- for my own stuff anyway. So, so I get it, but the beauty of recording over performing is you get to over time sort of craft the ideal quote unquote performance of one of your songs and it will exist forever, right? If, if I go to an open mic and perform and absolutely nail it, cool, 10 people maybe heard me do that. And maybe one of them will remember it by the time two weeks later comes. And zero of them will remember it a year later. That performance came and went, and it's done. right? Even if somebody had a, a their phone out and recorded it, yeah, that exists forever, but who the heck wants to watch that? right? I mean, I, I'm kind of a diehard for some of my favorite bands, so I am the guy who will like look up Poets of the Fall Live for their like newest song to see if they've recorded it. And I'd listen to the crappy version with, you know, somebody just holding their phone up at a concert. Um, but for the most part, right, that, that's not, no, nobody goes and listens to that. No, nobody's going to listen to that on Spotify 50 years from now. The beauty of recording is you get to create an idealized performance over time and it's there forever, right? If you even just record one single ever, that's something that your kids and your grandkids, or if you don't have any of those or never w- don't think you ever will have any of those for some reason, um, you know, whatever. Who, whoever else is close to you in life, that will exist forever. And for what it's worth, theoretically, uh, I'm not saying this is probable, but, uh, you know, you know, a lot of famous artists died poor and with nobody knowing or caring who they were, basically. And I feel like we have this idea that 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 of course, you know, the most popular artists today will be the legendary ones a hundred years from now. And I don't know that there's any reason to believe that. That's never historically been the case. Um, so so why that's necessarily true, uh, I don't know. I don't know why people just kind of assume that, right? Everybody's like, "Oh, Taylor Swift will go down as a le-. will she? Will she though?" Uh, now I'm a Taylor Swift hater, so that probably adds to it. In my opinion that she won't. Um, but also, also really, I don't think that many pop artists are going to end up <laughs> going down as anything more than what they are, 
which is cotton candy McDonald's music. It's okay. I got my shot in. We're good. Anyway, so I don't talk much on the YouTube channel for songwriter theory or this podcast on recording. There's a lot of reasons for this one. It's just not the thing that like I, I do it. I'm passionate about doing it. I'm not super passionate about teaching it. And then specifically, uh, I even got into it because of the recording revolution who, uh, Graham, who no longer is day to day on it, but all, all the people helping Graham out at the recording revolution. Fantastic. Chris Lipe. Fantastic. Go check out recording revolution. I don't need to make recording stuff because you should just go there. That's the right place to go. Uh, his whole thing is you don't have to spend a ton of movie money on gear. He almost never talks about gear. And if it is, it's in the context of how can you make a great sounding song with $150 worth of studio equipment? He even did a video that's getting a high quality song out of using the, the mic on an iPhone. Not joking. Go check it out. Uh, so man after my own heart, you don't have to spend a ton of money. Check out Recording Revolution if you want an in-depth. But I'll give a TLDR of how I do things and how I got some pretty high-quality stuff uh, out of recording in a dorm back in the day even and now uh, in my basement. Basically, you need an audio interface. What is this? This is basically a thing that will connect via USB to your computer and then the audio interface has several things that can be plugged in. One is MIDI, which is usually what you'd use for keyboards. This basically just takes the information of how hard you press the key and when you press the key, right? That's a very shortened version, but MIDI, right? So it's basically for keyboards or synths. Then you have quarter inch, right? So that's for if you want to direct in your electric guitars or you could do acoustic guitar, but you shouldn't. We'll cover that in a second. Um, and bass guitars, right? So now we've covered piano, sort of, although we're going to go back over this and detail on how I would recommend you actually record these things with the MIDI and then um, uh, electric guitar and electric bass, direct line in the quarter inch. So you want a quarter inch on your audio interface. And then XLR. XLR, if anything, that's probably the one that you want the most, but XLR is basically what you would plug a mic into so uh so you have this audio interface hopefully has those those three things right xlr quarter inch midi um for the xlr you want well a cable that connects then to a decent condenser mic you want large diaphragm condenser mic you can get something like the blue bluebird for like 300 bucks it's quite good um that's one of the ones I have. That's actually what I record the podcast on back in the day. Now I have a different mic. But if you go back even like f three, four months in the podcast, and then all the time before that, I was using that mic, which I know that's different than singing, but for what it's worth, um, you can get a decent sounding mic for like two, $300. Again, just, you know, spend some time, look up maybe what, Recording Revolution recommends maybe a couple other people. They're going to probably say similar things. Go get a $200 mic, call it a day. Don't overthink it. Um, and then, so you're going to use that mic for vocals and acoustic guitar. Do not direct line in acoustic guitar. It doesn't sound good. Mic it. Use a large diaphragm condenser mic. Again, the real shortened version of this is usually if you make it about a foot away from your guitar, 
And if you aim it sort of uh, at the 12th fret of your guitar, give or take, that will sound pretty good. That's all you need to know. Of course, experiment, though. Move it around, see if you like a different sound better, etc. All right. And then, of course, for that, you need an okay sounding room. If you have a room that sort of sounds okay in your house, maybe has a, a lot of, uh, say, a closet with a lot of clothes that will make it sound pretty dead, um, or, or maybe a bedroom where there's a giant mattress that helps. And recommendation here, some, some people will tell you like, oh, you don't want the room to be too dead. And that's true from a certain point of view. <laughs> um, but if you have a really dead room, you can almost always add life and reverb and stuff afterwards and it'd be fine. If you have a ton of reverb, like you record a vocal in the shower, that is reverb that can't be taken out, right? So I'll always lean probably more dead than than life. Anyway, uh, a great cheap thing that you can do that really helps, get packing blankets and a bunch of them. You can get like, I think a pack of like eight for like 20 bucks on Amazon or something. And then some PVC pipe. Put together a PVC pipe so you make sort of like a, you know, something that you can stand in and is big enough to hold you holding your acoustic guitar and then, you know, drape the blankets all over it. Boom. Makeshift vocal guitar booth. All right. Electric guitar and bass are easier. Use direct input. Just quarter inch right in. Some people will tell you not to do that with electric guitar. Uh, I think those people are wrong. Can you mic an amp? Sure. Should you? I don't think so. Why? Because then, again, you're at risk with room noise, right? And a lot of us don't have good rooms. Also, you're limited in that usually guitars sound best when they're really, really, really loud, or amps, I should say. Um, and you might be in an apartment. You probably don't want to tick off your neighbors, etc. cetera. Uh, but with electric guitar direct line in, it's all in your headphones. You can do it at 1 o'clock in the morning. You can record, and it doesn't bother anybody. Also, if you use Amplitube, which is like $300, yes, but Amplitube is great. But bypass the cabinets. That's the only part that isn't super great. And then use a tool like uh, there's something called Kefir, K-E-F-I-R, uh, which allows you to get other cabinet impulses. So basically you're bypassing the cabinets from Amplitube. You're just using sort of the, the pedal effects and all the distortions and all that, but you're not using the, the cabinet modulation. Um, but anyway, and then you can go find some, some nice cabinet impulses to use. Um, yep. I'll put, a, I'll put a link to that tool that I mentioned in the show notes as well. And then lastly, MIDI. So if you get like a nice, if you're a pianist, get a nice like $400 weighted keys Yamaha with the 88 keys, right? It's like 400 bucks. It's real basic. It has a MIDI out. It's it's weighted keys, has the full 88 keys. Boom, done. I like to use East-West Piano, which again, yes, is very expensive. It's like $500. You don't need to do that. You can get a pretty good sounding one for free. Check out Spitfire Labs. They have a bunch of... Uh, pianos. There are some great sounding free piano things out there. You don't have to use East West. Just for the record, I think East West is great. Also, if you happen to already have Omnisphere, which is a great synth I've recommended before, there are some good sound, great sounding pianos in that as well. Anyway, that should cover like all your instruments. 
Anything else like strings and all that is literally just like you use the keyboard with MIDI again. Just this time you're using a plugin that maybe is string sounds or, uh, you know, organ or whatever else you want to use. All right. We spent more time on that than I intended. Let's get to the next one. So you're a recording engineer, right? You're the one recording your songs. Also producer. What's the difference? Well, a producer is looking at the bigger picture of the overall of how the overall final production should be. Right, a producer is thinking about, uh, you know, how to make that one track in your album sound just right. Maybe they're thinking about how that one song, uh, it just feels like maybe a harp part would actually add something interesting to it. Or, or just really add to the feel of that song. Or make it sound a little bit less like the other songs on the album if they're sounding a little, a little too the same. Or... A producer might also think like, you know, this song is actually, I think, better if it has more of a rock feel. Or maybe if we make an, a, this this song, you thought it was a rock song, but let's actually try a more acoustic, laid back version. Maybe that will work better for this song. Th these are the decisions a producer is making, right? They're thinking about in the context of this album or EP, how do I get this song to shine? Right? Maybe you thought that this would be a guitar-centric song, but the producer might come in and be like, actually, this might work better as a piano ballad instead. So this is a hat that we're wearing, right? When we're sitting and recording our own EP or album, which I recommend doing an EP, five songs. I think it's doable to do like one EP a year. Uh, I say that. Uh, as somebody who has not done that recently, but I'm kind of in a weird spot where I'll probably end up releasing like three in the course of like a year and a half and I'll end up just delaying one just because it's done too soon because I have a bad habit of when I'm about to finish a thing, I like work on the new thing. So I'm going to have like three EPs basically to, it's just, it's bad. Anyway, don't be like me in that. But so if you if you're, if you're working on your own album or your own EP, you're the one making these decisions, right? You're the one who decides, hey, I recorded this song with the acoustic guitar, but man, I, once I recorded the piano part, I'm like, maybe that should be more featured. Maybe I don't even want the guitar part anymore. Maybe I just want the guitar to come in in the chorus and for the verses to be carried by the piano instead of the guitar. Or maybe you write the strings part and you're like, you know, this the strings part is so good. I almost want to make like a laid back version of this song that's literally like a fake string quartet with my vocal and that's it. These are all producer thoughts. So another thing a producer usually does is, uh, now this depends. This is maybe a little bit more the movie producer thing, but paying for the things, right? Making the decisions on like what you can afford. Uh, for, you know, do, do you mix the music yourself or do you outsource to somebody, pay somebody to actually mix the song for you? But we'll get back into that in a second. But really, as a producer, you're thinking about beyond the song. It's sort of an arra some arrangement questions that you're asking. You know, hey, I think this needs a heart part. Or, hey, uh, we have enough songs that are super, like, electric guitar heavy. Maybe we need a piano song. Stuff like that. Next, sound designer. Uh, due to the continued influences of EDM and electronic music as a whole, I think the art of sound design is becoming more and more a part of what we do as songwriters. And, you know, I think a lot of songwriters don't do it, but I think we're honestly missing out. 
And look, I get it. Most of the people listening to this probably aren't doing EDM. I'm not doing EDM, right? I, I don't necessarily cater to people doing EDM. I, I don't think anything I say is not EDM. But uh, I certainly, just from you know emails from people and all that sort of thing, um, I have yet to actually hear from somebody who does EDM. So I think mostly for the most, and I think a lot of people do EDM music. Like they call themselves producers, which is like true but also like usually they're also songwriters technically, but they don't see themselves that way. So I guess songwriter theory podcast specifically is addressing uh, people who would more be, you know, singer songwriters, people who are the songwriter for their rock band or their country band or whatever it might be. Probably the same reason that, that uh, there aren't a ton of people that I get emails from who do rap, but instead I get people who do country and singer-songwriter and folk and rock and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I do think we can learn a lot from people who do EDM, and I think the same is true for them to us. Uh, I think it's really important to learn from uh, different different styles within your art and different perspectives within your art. And I think that overall as songwriters, we're missing out if we don't at least do some sound designing. Because, look, I get it. In your average song where maybe you're recording an acoustic guitar, two electric guitars, a bass and drums, or at least that's what the live version would be, right? Uh, there isn't too much to design sound-wise, right? You, you just record it. You get the guitar amp going. You put on the effect you want, which I guess you could argue is kind of sound design, but not really. We wouldn't really consider it that. Um, it's largely just, you know, your favorite guitar distortion or whatever. And then you just record it, right? But it's amazing how far just designing one sound can go, right? Whether that's designing a certain synth noise to use in your song, maybe it's a lead synth sound, or recording some vocals through guitar distortion for a certain effect. Uh, but, you know, even beyond that, right, you, you can maybe make a sound that's a combination of a backwards piano and a backwards guitar, right? Or maybe a backwards piano note that leads into a forwards guitar note. Uh, this is, I've, I've done some things with, you know, sort of taking a, a guitar part and then note by note, sort of shifting it so that it goes in reverse and then combining that with a note going forward, it gets some really cool effects that sound very different. And that's sort of a, like a simple thing that can go a long way in making something sound immediately recognizable and different and kind of cool, right? Because we're so used to hearing the same, it's an electric guitar, whether it's distorted or more overdriven or has some, it's a guitar, right? We all know it. We've all heard it a million times. Same with piano and bass. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Most of our songs rely on those things. But what I'm saying is it's amazing if you just have one part per song or one part per three songs or five songs where you actually, you know, go out and maybe record a sound and make something with it. Or just, you know, do some editing of a traditional sound, like, you know, just having a piano note, but it, it goes backwards or guitar backwards or backwards and forwards at the same time or you know maybe a harp pitched way down to sound unnaturally low for a harp right you're not used to a harp sounding low whatever it might be um you know just doing one of those things can go a long way um you know maybe your dog is barking <laughs> get your phone out record the sound of your dog barking 
you might be surprised how cool of a sound you can come up with by playing with the pitch, uh, how, how fast the sound goes, right? If you slow it down or if you speed it up, different things that might happen. Uh, you know, forwards versus reverse. Or the sound of your grandfather grandfather clock or ceiling fan. I use those two examples because they're literally things I've done. Uh, one song, I the the sort of the bass synthy sound of it is really just a ceiling fan that was pitched way down and slowed way down. So that's like a whoosh, whoosh. Even though it was a fan that was going pretty fast, uh, and it worked. It sounded. It just sounds different. Right? Not so different that people would be like, oh, what is that necessarily? But it sounds different. Or there's a rock song I have that um, I'm working on where at the beginning of it, it has a grandfather clock ringing, one ring basically, and you can sort of hear the click, click, click of the of the actual uh, you know, seconds. Uh, but And I just reverse it. And again, pitched it way down, so it sounded more like you know the the clock of your hometown, right? That that clock that's usually I think at the fire station or whatever, wherever the, or a church is pretty common, right? Uh, it sort of got that rich clock sound. Uh, maybe your hometown doesn't have that, but anyway, it sort of gives that sort of ominous sound out of just a, a pretty cheap grandfather clock. Um, you know. Something to look to, too, is movies. Movies do a ton with sound design, and you can learn a lot from them. And since I love Star Wars, we'll mention, like, a TIE fighter, for example. Star Wars is just absolutely filled with great examples of sound design, right? Like, almost every sound in Star Wars is a foreign sound, right? Like, it's not it's not just, like, when lightsabers hit, it's not the sound of just swords hitting, right? There's no... They created all these sounds of the lightsaber, what blasters sound like, um, you know, uh, Darth, Darth Vader's breathing, uh, TIE fighters, all the different ship noises, that awesome, um, I don't know why I'm forgetting what it's called at the moment, but that awesome uh, explosive thing from Django slash Boba Fett's ship. Uh, which is maybe the coolest noise I've ever heard with, you know, the blue, the blue ring explosion. I can't believe I can't remember what it's called right now. Anyway, these are all designed sounds, right? Uh, just take the TIE fighter, for example. That That's famously an elephant call combined with a, a car driving on wet pavement. Like they took those two sounds, put them together. I assume there's some slowing down and the elephant call maybe is backwards or something. You know, so, some of the basic things you play with with a sound, which is either speeding it up, slowing it down, or pitching it up, pitching it down, or, um, or you know, forward or re reverse, right? Those are the basic things to do with sounds. So look, take that and put that into your songs. If you have a five-song EP, my challenge is figure out one song and make a sound for it. Um, anyway, a few more to go. We'll rip through these hopefully pretty fast. But Arranger, this is kind of similar to Producer. There's a nuanced difference. But overall, an Arranger is not necessarily making big picture decisions on the general, like, here's what this song needs to have so much as they are actually writing the parts. Right. So if you want to write a string quartet to add to your song, that's that hat you're wearing is an arranger's hat. You're figuring out, okay, based on this chord progression that I have in this chorus, if I want to have a string quartet playing underneath that, 
what are the individual parts that come together to create this string quartet that I want to write. That's an arrangement decision. Or, and this is getting a little more hybrid arranger producer, but they kind of are very similar. Uh, and certainly if there was a Venn diagram between the two, there would probably be more overlap than not in the context of music. But, you know, will, will you focus on an arrangement that utilizes synths in a role that guitars would normally have? That's kind of an arrangement decision, also kind of a producer decision. Or do you create an interesting lead guitar textured arrangement or create a wall of guitars style arrangement? Or maybe you opt for something more simplistic and live sounding where you just have two guitars because you know your band live would only be you know, two guitars, two guitarists. So you're like, you know what? Let's make it so our live show sounds exactly like the recording. And a great way to do that is to record in the same way that you would play it live, which is to not have a wall of guitars, but to just have the two guitars that you would have live. And, you know, you pan one hard left and one hard hard right. So that the one is coming out of the left speaker and the other one out of the right speaker. So that you, we're arrangers. Right, we're making arrangement decisions. How to arrange the song? How to, you know, what what all the individual string parts are? What the individual guitar parts are that are all layered together? When the bass comes in? When the bass maybe jumps out? All that kind of stuff is another hat we wear. And then finally, well, not finally. There's a couple, but mix engineer and then mastering engineer. So a mix engineer is changing like the EQ and the compression on individual instruments or tracks within a song, right? So a mix engineer is taking, you know, guitar number one and cutting out the low end and giving it a, what you'd call a presence peak where you like really brings out, accentuates the, the nicest sounding part of the guitar, if you will. Uh, and then compression, which is basically just making it so that the volume over time isn't radically different. This is why when you listen to a song, even if the first part was somebody almost whispering the vocals and it was just an acoustic guitar with them, and then you get to the chorus and it's like 500 instruments and then the person is like belting at the top of their voice so that, you know, right, if you were with them, the sound difference would be incredible. The first one, you couldn't hear them unless you were like two feet away. And the second one, you could live next door and you're still hearing them sing. And yet, when you listen to that in the car, it you know you didn't even have to raise or lower the volume at highway speeds, right? It, the volume of the song overall is still pretty consistent. And a part of that is because each of those tracks are, have compression on them. They make it so that even though it still sounds like the vocal is a lot louder when they're doing the high notes, it technically is not really that much louder. Um, that's kind of a TLDR version, but good enough for now. So that's something we have to do sometimes. We'll revisit that in a second. And then mastering. Mastering is you've already mixed the song, which means all of the individual instruments are mixed in a song. But mastering is taking the song, the mix of the song as a whole, and then tweaking it even more. Right, so usually you're doing similar things, uh, volume with compression, EQ, and then usually you're mastering so that, you know, if you have a five-song EP, you take the mixes, the five mixes, you put them next to each other, and then you sort of figure out how each song will, you know, fade out, and then the other one, one will come in, how you make it so that maybe song two and song one really feel like they don't belong on the same album, so maybe you make little tweaks to kind of make them sound a little 
little more similar just in the way that they're EQ'd. You know, if the first one is really bright sounding and the second one's kind of dark sounding and really most of the EP you want to be more dark sounding, maybe you do some EQ tricks to kind of make the first song sound a little darker. If I'm losing you, that's okay. Uh, this It's not really important for you to understand mixing and mastering and I'm giving a very high level, mostly true version. Uh, I say mostly true because kind of, you know, anytime you make a generalization or try to explain something at a high level, it's like some things are like technically it needs further explanation and clarity. But anyway, l largely mixing, mastering are things that we, if we we're going to release our own songs, we would do ourselves. But the last one, manager, we're in charge of running our own business our own act, right? We're in charge of promoting our songs, putting our songs out there, putting them up on YouTube, putting them on Spotify, contacting a magazine or an influencer or YouTuber or something to promote our stuff. Um, and, you know, an another part of maybe a manager's decision, meaning the manager of the business entity, if you will, that is you as an artist, is you might decide, and for the record, I believe this is the correct decision, that while recording at home makes sense because unlike recording in a studio where it gets unbelievably expensive unless you record it really fast and then you're rushed, uh, honestly, for most things, you can record in just as good quality at home these days. So you might as well record, record at home where it doesn't cost you money per hour. Take your time, get it right over time, but then mixing and mastering, those are relatively short processes. If you have a five-song EP, there's a good chance that a professional can mix your whole five-song EP in like two to four hours, which that, even at like $100 an hour, is like, oh, 400 bucks, done, right? And a lot of times a mix engineer can also do basic mastering as well, throw in maybe another 100 bucks because that's even easier. So... Honestly, in my opinion, the best way to get best bang for your buck as far as releasing a great EP or album is you do everything yourself except for the mixing and mastering, which you should outsource to a professional because that is probably worth paying for. Uh, because A, you can do it for probably not that much money if you, if, as long as the, your recordings are of a good quality. Right, if they don't have to do too much fixing, especially if you like pitch correct your own vocals and everything, then definitely uh, you're leaving very little for the mix engineer to do. Basically, it's just taking all your tracks and mixing, which just takes very little time usually. So, highly recommend that. But anyway, last last thing on manager. Besides, I think a great manager <laughs> decision to make is, hey, uh, I'm not going to mix and master my own songs. Um, well, again, that's that's just my personal opinion. I think it's worth it. But hey, if you're really good at mixing and you can learn to be really good at mixing with, you know, without investing too much time into it, great, do it. I've done it before. I've done it for demos. Just when it comes to the EP that I'm, the EPs that I'm going to do from now on, uh, frankly, I'm going to have my 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 friend who is a professional at this do all the mixing. I do everything else. I wear every other hat. I want it to be out of my hands when it comes to mixing. It's worth the price to me. Anyway, big idea. Last thing I want to leave you with. Your music is not your product to sell. I think a lot of people are still stuck in the old ways 
and they're disappointed when they realize nobody wants to buy their music. Don't be disappointed by that. Nobody does want to buy your music, and it's not just you. It's you and everybody else, right? Even the artists who make millions of dollars are complaining about this. The reality is pirating back in the day and then the emergence of streaming has absolutely killed the value of, of you know, music, of an EP, of an album. But really, it's just shifted. Now your music is basically your business card. It's your promotional material. You should look at your music as the thing you give away for free, that you let people listen to for free, you let them watch on YouTube for free, and that is what will make them interested in you and helps them to find you. It's not hidden behind a paywall. You just give the music out for free, and then uh, what you make music with can can be you know maybe extra stuff, maybe use Patreon, right, just to get people to, to feel like they're sponsoring you to make more music. That might be a way to go, or... Um, you know, sell doing extra stuff that people could buy, right? Because a super fan might be interested in getting, I don't know, maybe you handwrite a lyric of their favorite song from you and, you know, a hundred bucks, right? A super fan is willing to do that. And that costs you very little time and you just made a hundred bucks, just as an example. Or, you know, autographed albums or making a poster, you know, merch type stuff. Uh, even better if you can figure out something that isn't a physical product. Um, overall, I don't pretend that the business side of music is my expertise. I know much more about business in other areas other than as a musical artist. Uh, but there's plenty of people out there like uh, Rick Barker who teach on this if you're interested. Um, but hey, step one is being good at, to me, all the other things. Then you can go into manager mode where you're running your own uh, artist business, if you will, because you should treat your music overall somewhat like a business. I think um, I, I have a probably deeper and more nuanced opinion of that, but this podcast is running long, so we're not going to talk about that here. But again, big idea. If your expectation is that you're going to remake this album and people are going to buy your album, crush that expectation right now. Don't think of it that way. Think of it the same way I do this podcast, right? You may have noticed this podcast is not behind a paywall. Some of you maybe have listened to all 191 episodes of the Songwriter Theory podcast, which if you have, wow, thank you. <laughs> I'm very honored. Um, and you haven't paid a dime, right? Like it, this, this is free. What does, what, so like, what do I get from this? Well, I build relationship, right? So in the future, when I have, you know, maybe a course to sell that you're interested in or something else, this works as the way that I, you know, teach you for free. And so you get something from me for free, which is what makes you interested in songwriter theory in the first place, right? So think of your music more like what this podcast would be or the videos would be. They're not hidden behind a paywall. There's no catch. There's nothing, right? This is free. And hopefully it helps you. And in the case of your music, it should be free and hopefully people like it. Right, because then maybe they will want to have a deeper relationship with you. Maybe they'll want to buy your merch. Maybe all that kind of stuff. Right, whatever it is that you can think of to sell. Regardless, I don't think that should be our focus. Because first, let's make sure we're songwriting, performing, recording engineer, producer, sound designer, arranger, mix engineer, mastering engineer, hats, 
are on. And again, I don't necessarily think you need to do your own mixing master. And I, I, I would say, you know, go to Recording Revolution. They also teach mixing, a lot of mixing and mastering. Um, you know, try it yourself, but, but you know, maybe find someone in your area who's a professional at it, see the difference, and make a decision for yourself whether you think it's worth it to pay for somebody else to do it or for you to mix it yourself. Hopefully this was helpful to you. Again, if you're interested in the free guides I mentioned at the beginning, don't forget about those. Songwritertheory.com slash music theory guide for the four pillars of music theory. I think every songwriter needs to know and know not just ones that care about being more of a composer, um, just regular songwriter. Those are the four pillars I think are absolutely necessary. And if you want to take lyrics more seriously, songwritertheory.com slash lyric checklist. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every single one of you. I really appreciate those of you who have uh, even taken the time to leave kind reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That means a lot to me. Thank you very much for that. And if you haven't already and you want something to give back for the 191 episodes of Free Songwriter Theory Podcast episodes, a great way that you can help me out if you are so inclined is simply to leave a kind review on whatever podcast listening platform you use. But even if you don't, no hard feelings. I love you anyway. I hope you have a good week and I will talk to you in the next one.